This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Independent news commentary with a California perspective. Season 8, Episode 15, Baseball Card Mania. The Big Business of Trading Sports Cards. Talking with Ryan Fagan, Major League Baseball journalist for the Sporting News. Target, one of the largest retailers in America for baseball and sports cards, recently announced they would stop selling cards for the safety of their customers. Keep in mind, I always thought of youngsters as sport card buyers, so that, atten- that announcement got my attention. These days, when I think about safety for customers, especially kids, I think of health risks. Had anthrax traces or COVID virus traces been found in a pack of cards? No. The threat that the retailer feared was physical violence from unruly crowds of young men elbowing out youngsters to buy up as many packs of cards as they could. Tops and Panini are the only baseball card brands. Even a one-pack-per-customer limit didn't stop the unruly crowds. So Target has just stopped selling them. Many communities have no other card sellers, like sports memorabilia shops. So now millions of kids are out of luck if they want to buy a pack of sports cards at Target. So what's at play here? Is the speculative fever that drove the price of Bitcoin and GameStop spilled over to baseball cards? Well, we've been down this road before in the 1990s, and it didn't end well for card investors. And in a sign that big money sees gold in those cards, Tops, the largest and premier baseball card company, is said to be going public. With us today to make sense of a pastime on steroids is Ryan Fagan, senior Major League Baseball writer for the Sporting News. Founded in 1886 in St. Louis, Missouri, the Sporting News was known as the Baseball Bible. But of course, it covered other sports too. It used to be a weekly publication, but it switched to a digital version in 2012. And the collectors of the late 1980s and early 1990s are now in their 40s with disposable income, and like all investors, they're looking for investment opportunities. During 2020, 10 cards sold for more than $500,000 each. Cards are tangible, unlike stocks, and they're a culture asset, like other alternative investments, like fine art, classic cars, and vintage wines. A $20 million investment fund has been created to buy sports cards, primarily baseball cards, and it's up 35% since last September. Ryan Fagan joins us today from his home in St. Louis, Missouri. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking about this. One of my favorite subjects. (laughs) Okay. My pleasure, Ryan. Ryan, please take a few moments and tell us about your career as a sports journalist, which, of course, would be everyone's dream job, and a little bit about your biography and how you got started in the business. Well, I've been at Sporting News for 15 years now, which is a, a lifetime um, in this industry. Uh, I've been very, very, very blessed, very lucky. I've done a little bit of everything in my time at SN. When I was hired, 
it was as an assistant ed- associate editor on the magazine. And my first duties were fact-checking NASCAR stories. And I knew nothing about NASCAR. And Lee Spencer, who was our NASCAR writer at the time, knew everything about NASCAR. So that was that was quite the, the welcome to the show, kid, moment uh-huh. <laughs> and to, and to figure out. So first of all, what terminology she was using, and then uh, trying to fact check one of the the absolute best recorders in in the in that sport was actually pretty easy because she was never wrong. So you know that was yeah, and from there I've I've written a lot of college basketball, covered the NCAA tournament eleven or twelve different years. I've written baseball on and off. Well, I mean, I started writing baseball pretty pretty soon. I got my Hall of Fame vote a couple of years ago, which is a pretty cool little career perk. Very impressive. Um, yeah, so I've I've been in SM for, for like so 15 years now. Started in October of five. Before that, I covered high school and minor league sports in suburban St. Louis. I did that for four or five years. Then went back to grad school at the University of Missouri School of Journalism, which is, in my opinion, it's the best J school in the country and got the job at Sporting News right outside of that. You know, haven't looked back. Ryan, that's very impressive. And of course, I guess you've always been a big baseball fan, right? Yeah, you, you grow up in St. Louis and it's in your blood, you know, and it's 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 the Cardinals shirt, but it's it's baseball more. You know, I think that's, if people talk about St. Louis baseball fans and, you know, they get a kind of a bad rap because there are some crazy people that happen to like the Cardinals. But it's it's about baseball here, you know, what's anything. I remember, I always tell people this, you know, the neighborhood we grew up in, suburban St. Louis, you could ride your bike around the block and pretty much listen to the Cardinal game the whole way because people would have it on on the radio sitting on their front porch. And so you could just, like, pick it up. Like, as if there was, like, a pitch going you know, or a batter up, you knew you could hurry up and get to the next house, and then you could hear it again. So, you know, that was that was kind of the baseball experience growing up. You were just immersed in it, and I, you know, of course, loved every minute of it. That, that's uh, that's a wonderful story and, you know, uh, small town America. Not that St. Louis is a small town, but sometimes a suburb of a big town yeah, feels we were, like we a small, small town. town. Well, well, Ryan, listen, first of all, thank you very much for that biography and background summary. Could you give us a sense of sports card collecting 101? Because when I was collecting baseball cards in the early 1960s, there have been a lot of changes. There are a lot more sports cards out there. Could you just give us an update as regards sports card, sports card collecting 101 today? Yeah, it's it's a different world. You know, I mean, personally as a collector, I started in 1987 when I was 11 years old, collected the 1987 top set, the classic wood grain border. And I loved it. And my buddies and we would, I mean, we would, you know, we would ride our bikes up to the Ben Franklin and, and buy packs for 35 cents a piece. And you know, we would use our, our money from shoveling driveways or mowing lawns and, and go get the cards. And so I collected pretty, excuse me, pretty, pretty, strongly until around 1993, 94. That's when I went to college. And, you know, when you get to college, your your, your focus changes a little bit and, you know, you kind of drop some things away. And I didn't collect much at all until, you know, quite honestly, a year and a half ago, uh-huh. two years ago, uh-huh. my reentry into the collecting world was 
a pretty significant wake up call because it's nothing like it used to be. You know, first of all, when I when I stopped collecting, there was top Donner's Fleer, Score, Pinnacle, Upper Deck, like all these different companies were producing baseball cards. Well, now Topps has an exclusive license with MLB, and Panini has uh, a license with the MLBPA, so they can produce card the likeness of the players and their names, but they can't use the team logos or the mm-hmm. team nicknames. So you have those two companies, and they each produce, I, I want to say, they each produce between 20 and 25 different products every year. Uh-huh. Right. So there's a ton of things out there. And, you know, I've talked with executives from top, both Topps and Panini over the past year or so, and, and I asked them straight out, you know, I mean, as you kind of alluded to in the intro, you know, there was a, the, the trading card market was a big thing once upon a time, and that didn't end well for people who had put money into it. And so I said, how are you going to avoid those mistakes, right? And the biggest way they do it now is back then when people wanted more baseball cards, they just mashed the print button and they produced hundreds of thousands and probably millions of each individual card, yes. which tanked their value. Now what they do is they'll have parallels. They'll have, I think there's a Panini set out there that has like 33 different parallels. It's a pink parallel, a yellow parallel and a cracked ice parallel and all of these different things that makes the card look a little different. They number the cards. So it'll be, you know, one of, 23 cards for example and there's the number it says number seven of 23 right on the card there so you know that card has there's only 23 other copies that are exactly like that and so that has kept the scarcity element there even though they're still producing a ton of cards they're just producing a ton of variations of the same card and collectors are chasing those and that's kind of helped fuel the market as it is now so it's it's kind of like a a printmaker who'll have a limited edition, maybe like a hundred copies yeah. of the print, and then you get a number. You know, you buy number twenty five or number thirty two or something like that. So you know that there was a, a limited run of a hundred copies of this print, and you've got number twenty five, for instance. Exactly, and but what they're doing is they'll make thirty different versions of that same limited print card with pink hue on it and then they'll number that out of 30 and then they'll make a version with a blue hue and they'll number that out of 30 so they've really kind of expanded on what they can do and you know and i'll say this this is something that didn't exist back when i was collecting originally either you know they'll have autograph cards they're certified autographs they'll have relic cards they'll actually take like game used uniforms cut out a tiny little square and put that in the card and just make the card a little bit thicker. So you have these relic cards and autograph cards, and those really, really, really fuel the the chase mentality, the lottery ticket mentality uh-huh. that has really helped to um, increase sales and interest in the product. Tell us about relic cards, because when I think of relics, for instance, in the Catholic Church, saints, uh, holy people, when they would die, there would be relics. It might be a piece of their hair or a lock of hair or a bone or a piece of cloth of their their habit. Is that what you mean by a relic card? Could you explain, please, Ryan? Essentially. I mean, when I, and I'll, I'll say this, when I hear people mention relic cards, my first thought is still, wait, it's an Indiana Jones card? 
and I think of Indiana Jones chasing these lost relics from the from the church. <laughs> but essentially, between between me and you and anyone listening, relic is the wrong word. Right? Uh-huh. Relic implies something super valuable and rare and super old, right? To me, but what it essentially is is anything that can be connected to the player. There are bat relic cards. So what they'll do is they'll take like let's say Panini will buy at auction a bat that was used by Willie Mays, right? And they will slice that bat up into thousands and thousands of little tiny slivers that basically look like clarinet reeds. For heaven's sake. And and then they'll put those in the cards. So that's a relic card. Like I said, you you can do that with (laughs) jerseys. You can do that with flags. You can do that with really anything you want. And the goal is to try to make something that's that's a little bit different. I mean, it's the idea. See, now, now I want a Willie Mays bat relic card. Now that I, I'm talking about it, because that would be really cool, right? To uh-huh. own a baseball card that has a piece of Willie Mays's bat in it that he actually right? touched. That, that he actually it, touched. Right. That actually touched or actually used. So and that's that's one of the things that you know when we talk about how are the companies going to avoid the mistakes of the past. It's, it's stuff like that and unique, creative, rare stuff that really helps, you know, helps avoid them having to just print more and more product. Now, there are other kinds of cards. There are rookie cards. There are – tell us about all the different kind of cards within the you – know, in, in the, more, the more traditional baseball card collecting, collection. What are the – typically, as a collector, what kind of cards would I be – looking for what would I what would I collect if I wanted to start a collection today, where would I start? Well that's a great question, and because there are a lot there are countless different types of answers to that. You know, and I talk to people and interact with people on Twitter all the time who are collectors. And you know, sometimes I've just asked, like, what's what's your personal collection right now? And if you ever see people on Twitter or on social media talking about their PC, that stands for their personal collection. I probably shouldn't admit this, but it took me a while to figure out what in the world they were talking about when they'd say, my PC is Larry Walker. You know, I don't know what that means, but it means personal collection, right? So, so you, you'll, you basically, they'll pick a player that they want, a position. I, I was talking to someone the other day who said their personal collection is catchers. They like catching and they like collecting as many catcher cards as they can. Okay. You know, everyone still loves rookie cards. And now you actually they kind of created this rule that says you can't produce a card, a regular card of a player until after he makes his major league debut. Right. And then once he makes that major league debut, he can be in the next year set of cards and there's an official rookie card designation on the card RC. Right. Now there are ways to get around that Bowman, which is a product that tops puts out has long been Product. I mean, since back in the in the early '90s, when they in 1989, when when Topps brought Bowman back after 30 some odd year absence, Bowman was always all about the rookies, about the the minor leaguers, the guys that were still two or three years away from the majors. So Bowman still has the ability to do cards of players who are still a little bit away from major leagues, but those cards are designated with a little note on the card that says first Bowman card. So. You know, it's, and these are all the things that, as I've gotten back into the hobby in the last year and a half, year, year or two, these are things I've had to figure out. Sometimes I just 
ask people. Sometimes I just wait long enough and see if I can <laughs> figure out what's going on. But, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, it's this, it's still essentially this hobby that I loved as a kid. Yes. Right. That is still there. I still love it. And it's peeling back and finding out these different layers about how the hobby has evolved while I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes it's overwhelming, but it's always kind of cool. You know, it, it's always something that you figure out this little piece and you're like, Oh, I, I really like that. That was a good idea. <laughs> or, you know, a lot of times you say, Oh, that's, that's dumb. Why did they do that? But the goal is, the companies, you know, and I can tell you from having talked to them, they're always trying new things. Some of them work, some of them don't. Well, it sounds like the the companies, Tops and Panini, recognizing are, are are sort of creating scarcity. They're creating yeah. uniqueness in their cards, which of course will only increase value. Number one, number two. It sounds like collectors, particularly you know, young men and or and women, but in your age group, who would have a targeted and a very focused collection, as you said, they're only going to collect uh, catchers, or they're only going to collect a, a certain position, or maybe a certain geography. Maybe they're only going to collect California cards or Florida cards or something like that. So that the the theme, the collector theme, is common in in most collections, whether it's fine art or classic cars or vintage wines, we're seeing that spill over into baseball cards. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the biggest thing that's that's different now is, you know, when I was when I would open a pack of nineteen eighty seven tops, right? Let's say I would get if I was lucky I would get a Bo Jackson card. Right. Loved Bo Jackson. Fit one of my favorite players back then. That Bo Jackson might be worth three or four dollars if I went to the local card shop and tried to sell it back. And so I'd sell it back for 3 or $4, then, of course, I would just spend it right there and buy more baseball cards, right? Now, you can buy a pack of cards for $5, right. let's say. Because that's about a common price for a regular pack of cards these days. There, you've got a chance of opening a card that you can turn around and sell on eBay immediately for thousands of dollars. Right. Right. thousands of dollars and that lottery ticket mentality and approach to it is what has really driven the prices through the roof you know and a part of the problem you know when we talk about the issues that target has had you know and walmart had a lot of issues too but walmart never actually stopped selling cards the reason that target did is because there was an incident outside of the target in wisconsin where a couple of customers got into a fight almost got into a fight and one of them brought out a gun. And oh he had gosh. a concealed carry permit, right? But he brought out a gun and he waved it around. Oh, right? my God. So they shut down. The cops were called. They shut down the parking lot. There was a Trader Joe's in that in that um, development. Trader Joe's had to close. Target had to close. It was a big thing, yes. right? And that's when you're like, what? what is happening, yes. right? How are we getting guns involved with packs of cards that you buy from Target? Well, the truth is, is there's, there's money to be made, right? Target was selling. There, there's some, you know, and there's a, a thousand things I could mention here, but we'll talk about one thing specifically. The, the Panini's Prism Basketball product, right? You could buy for retail a pack of Panini Prism Basketball cards at Target for $9, mm-hmm. right? Retail for 
or I guess it was $9.99, so $10. You could go out to your car, put it on eBay, and within minutes, it would sell for $40 to $50. Amazing. Right? Amazing. So you're talking about crazy profit margins here. Right? So you buy 10 packs at $10, you're spending $100, and you're turning around, and within an hour, you're probably going to sell them and make a $400 profit, right? You do that over and over, and all of a sudden, you start to see why there is the aggressiveness, and you see why there is the, the tensions and the anger and all these attitudes that pop into the picture when money becomes involved, especially money on that level. I mean, if you think about it, there's literally... I've racked my brain trying to think. I can't think of any other product. You could walk into a retail store, pay retail for, and immediately flip it for four times what you paid for it, right? That just does not exist. That'd be walking. That'd be like walking into a Target, buying a toaster for twenty dollars, and selling it on eBay for eighty, right? Yes. <laughs> that just doesn't happen, and that's where that's where all of these other elements, these senior elements really entered into the picture and, you know, not to go off on too much of a tangent, you know, I talked to one of the VPs at Panini, right? And he told me that they've had problems with their suppliers because people would figure out these collectors and we, we call them in the industry, we call them flippers because they buy it for 10 and sell it for 40. They're, they're flipping the product. Yes. Right. And they're the, they're the big problem, these flippers, even though on a core level, I understand their motivation. Don't condone their tactics, but I understand the motivation, right? So these flippers were finding out who the suppliers were, and they were tracking them. In two cases, they actually found transponders on the cars of these suppliers. Oh, my God. So the flippers would know where they were and when they were headed to Target. And then they would show up right after that, right? And that's where you're like, okay, something's something's got to give this, yeah. this can't go on you know and that's again and you know and i wrote about this in one of the pieces that i that i did about it but i really think target i don't want to say they welcomed what happened in wisconsin because you don't want you don't ever want a gun to be brought into a situation like that right of course but by using that as this moment to say you know what let's take a time out let's we've, stop we've let's gone figure too this far. out I think it was a good thing mm-hmm. for Target, especially because nobody got hurt. Now, if somebody would got shot, then I wouldn't say that. But because mm-hmm. nobody got hurt, I think it really is a good thing. And Target is a, at some point going to start selling in stores again, and it's going to be different, mm-hmm. you know. But now at least they have a chance to stop and take a breath and figure out how they're going to do this in a way that doesn't lead to complications and, and incidents like that. Well, coming back to the 1990s when we had a run-up in values and then a collapse. It sounds as though today it's a very, it's a different kind of market altogether. Number one, the manufacturers are creating scarcity value and unique value in all of these variations of the cards that they're making today, which they didn't do back in the 80s and 90s, number one. And number two, you also have a younger generation of investors who are looking for a collectible potential investment. They remember their baseball cards from childhood. And now 
there's a now there are investment vehicles for as I said there's the uh, there was that 20 million dollar investment fund that was created they bought uh, I think up to a thousand cards and that that fund is up by 35 percent since last September yeah it's crazy and there there are a lot of there there are a lot of different ways to get involved you can get involved by buying stuff on eBay right but you know anytime there's money involved in a product or some sort of entity there's going to be people that jump in and try to figure out different ways to make money off of that so now you can buy there are a couple of couple of companies out there that are offering partial ownership of cards so let's say there's a 1952 tops mickey mantle yes and you want to own a piece of that because you can't own the whole thing you you invest ten thousand dollars in that mickey mantle you own whatever percentage of that card, $10,000 buys you. Then if that company sells that card for, let's say they bought it for 500000 they sell it for a million, well, then you get your $20,000 yeah. out of it, you know, and what, minus whatever fees and stuff are in there. And that, that idea of partial card ownership is such a foreign thing when you think about card collecting as it used to be. That's crazier it- it is. Let's just let's just come back to let's come back to that example of Mickey Mantle 1952 classic card because that is a that that is a, a great story. 1952 Mickey Mantle of course was with the New York Yankees. There there was a famous card that was produced of Mickey Mantle holding his baseball bat and that I I remember seeing that card and a signature was on the card or at least printed on the card right. by by the 1960s so some 10 years later, that card, I think, was worth maybe a dollar. By the late 1970s, it was worth $1,000. We're talking about a pers- one in pristine condition, not one that I would have put on my bicycle spokes and to, to make noise right. on my, my bike. And then just, what was it, 2019, one, that card, the Mickey Mantle 1952 card that I just referenced, Sold at auction for two point eight million. So, have I got those numbers right, Ryan? Well, there there have been several different mantles that have sold for different values, and they but they've all taken that same basic path, right? It, got, it was it was worth not much because it was just a baseball card, and you didn't have baseball cards for money. You just had them for fun because they were your favorite players. And then yeah, so they incrementally jumped up until you know. I mean, really, when it it started probably getting to those levels maybe 15, 20 years ago, right? But it's jumped up even even crazier levels in the last couple of years. And specifically in the last year, it's now no longer just the 52 tops mantle. It's, you know, Mike Trout's rookie card. But it's a specific version of his Bowman rookie card. Mm-hmm. It's Tom Brady's rookie card, but it's a specific version of his rookie card. So, you know, and these things are selling for millions of dollars as well. So it's, it's really, they're, they're basically becoming status symbols. Yes. You know, I mean, I remember my buddy had that I, he would, he was the guy that I would ride my bike up and buy cards with. You know, he went to a shop with his dad and they found some, or the shop owner said, I've got these basketball cards that I can't sell. Do you want to buy them? Uh-huh. And his dad said, sure, I like basketball, right? So they were the 1986-87 Fleer 
basketball cards, which is Michael Jordan's rookie card, right? Those boxes, the boxes that they bought for probably $15, right, are selling for, I think, now I'm going to get the number wrong, but there was a box that sold for like $300,000. Oh, my gosh. A box of right? The Jordan card is selling for a million dollars, right? And so, like, everything is going crazy. But And this is something I, I, that I think is important because the nostalgia and the interest and the things that originally made us love trading cards, right? That's still driving the value. Yes. That's what makes the Jordan or the Mantle or the Trout or the Brady, these beloved players, it's still that same connection that makes it valuable because it's not like every 1952 card is worth $2.8 million. Right. Right. I mean, I was just in a shop the other day that they had some commons that, you know, and they were beat up, but you could buy for $5 a piece. Right. So it's still that same sense of wonder, that same nostalgia that has always been there. It's still the thing that's driving the market. It's just driving the market that is flush with cash in ways that we've never seen, you know, quite honestly, could never have ever comprehended. Well, Ryan, in the few remaining minutes of our podcast, are there any additional thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners or words of advice, words of caution? We certainly don't want to, we don't want our listeners to run out and sink all of their all of their 401k <laughs> retirement money in in this in this 20 million dollar baseball card investment fund, but but any any word any closing words for our listeners who might be interested I, in becoming collectors? I would just say this. I I would find what what makes you happy about the hobby but what players make you happy, what teams make you happy, and just hold on to that. You know, it's it's easy to get caught up in the money. It's easy to buy a $5 pack and think, oh, I didn't get the big card, but if I buy another $5 pack, I'll probably get it, right? Because then all of a sudden you spent $10 and $20 and $30, and maybe you still didn't get that card, and then you're frustrated. So it's just know what you what you want, what makes you happy, and do that and collect that you know and for me most of what i bought even after i've gotten back into the hobby most of the cards i bought has still been from that junk wax era which is basically 1987 to 93 when they produced cards at massive levels and those cards you know even they're, they're more expensive now than they were a year and a half ago those cards are still relatively expensive you can buy a box of 1987 tops my all-time favorite set for $40 on eBay and they'll ship it to you. You can get open the packs. You can, if you want, you can chew the gum. Just promise me that you're not going to swallow the gum. Do it, put it in your mouth while you're standing over a trash can and immediately spit it out because it's going to disintegrate on you. Right. You can do these things and still find that same joy and excitement in the hobby without getting caught up in the money because it's really easy to do it's really easy to do you just kind of have to say okay this is what i want this is what i want out of it this is what i'm going to do and this is what makes me happy and just do that well well ryan on that note and i had to chuckle with your advice not to not to swallow the bubble gum because i remember that was the caution that that we used to hear in the late 1950s and early 1960s. So it's good to know that certain things don't change. But I'd like to thank our guest, Ryan Fagan, for joining us today 
with an update on the world of baseball cards and more broadly sports cards collecting and look forward to having you back on another occasion. And of course, with that valuable Hall of Fame vote too. So I'm sure you have, uh, I'm sure you're, you're, you're getting many friends in the, in Major League Baseball, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the hall, the hall vote is a cool thing. It's been, it's been, uh, it's been an honor. And it's the thing that you have to turn your vote in by December 31st every year. And so right around Thanksgiving is when the, the pressure starts to mount and you have to figure out how you're going to fill out that ballot. But yeah, it's still a very, it's a very, it's been a very cool thing. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Well, Ryan, I couldn't imagine a, a better, more informed vote than yours in the, in the Hall of Fame stakes. Once again, thank you very much, Ryan, for being our guest. And I'll look forward to having you back again soon. And for my listeners, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast by going to the website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com. It's free to subscribe, and by doing so, all future episodes will go directly to your inbox. You can listen to the other 158 episodes. You can read my blog, peruse my book, send me an email, or make a comment. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.